Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the Morehouse School of Medicine campus is reopening in phases. President and Dean Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice joins me and explains how this will work and also reflects on this year's graduates. They're going into places where there may be a community that is disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 because they're going to underserved communities. They're going to communities where there is a higher population of black people. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, as of 9 a.m. today, there are 37,910 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 1,612. And there are 6,864 hospitalized. Now, that's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health, again, as of 9 a.m. today. And related to those numbers, the Georgia Department of Public Health says there was an error in yesterday's reported number of COVID-19 cases on the state's website. In a statement, a, quote, electronic processing error meant 231 serologic test results, also known as antibody tests, were included in the total number of positive cases. As a result, there was a decrease in reported positive cases between the reporting periods. Now, the state's website includes a statement that says, quote, we are working diligently to provide the most accurate information and we apologize for any confusion, close quote. Meanwhile, in-person early voting begins today throughout Georgia. Voters are required to stand six feet apart and will be provided hand sanitizer. Poll workers will wear masks and gloves. Many counties have reduced the number of polling sites due to concerns over the coronavirus pandemic. So far, more than 1.3 million Georgians have actually requested an absentee ballot rather than voting in person. And early voting continues through June 5th. The primary is on June 9th. This is Closer Look. This is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. We're just about to wrap up our spring fundraising drive, but we need your help to keep WABE going strong. Don't go anywhere because this break will be short. I promise. If you can, please support us at wabe.org slash donate. Joining me now is Alita McCowman, WABE's education specialist. Thanks for having me, Rose. That's right. That is wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. We need your donation right now because it pays for things like Morning Edition and All Things Considered, which we love, of course. It pays for podcasts like Political Breakfast with Dennis O'Hare. And of course, it pays for Closer Look with my friend Rose Scott. You listen to WABE and you value us. So now it's time to support us. Go to WABE.org slash donate or call 678 553 
That's wabe.org slash donate. Thanks to all the listeners who've already made a financial gift to the station. Listeners like Donna and Ross, Millie in Big Canoe. And they write in to say WABE is our primary source of news. They go on to say they appreciate the thoroughness of our reporting and also the wide variety of other programs. We've become NPR news junkies, they say. Well, thanks to you, Donna and Ross. We really appreciate it. Donors like them make all of this possible, but we still need to hear from you. If you can afford it, give, please, right now at wabe.org slash donate. Or you can give us a call at 678-553-9090. And did you know that 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta community? That's people just like you. So if you're able to make a contribution, please consider a sustaining gift of $15 a month. Just go to wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Closer Look returns in about 30 seconds. Thanks for all your help. Please give us a call, 678-553-9090. And as always, thank you. Or go to wabe.org slash donate. Remember, it only takes a couple minutes to complete your donation. And the average gift from listeners is about $15 a month. But whatever you can afford, please give. Just go to wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. And thank you. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It's been a different kind of graduation season this May. There wasn't the usual walking across the stage for students in their cap and gowns in those large auditoriums or halls. And there won't be the usual hovering around the graduate to take pictures with grandma and uncle this and uncle that, aunt so-and-so. We all love that. And if you're like my parents who like to hoop and holler at a graduation, well, none of that really happened this year. Although virtual graduations, well, they've been all the rage. And that includes the Morehouse School of Medicine's 36 commencement exercise, which, like many others, was moved online. And this year's class includes our next wave of medical doctors, biomedical scientists, and public health practitioners. Congratulations to you all. And there's other news regarding the Morehouse School of Medicine as the president and dean, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, joins me now. Dr. Montgomery Rice, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be on the show with you. Let's go back to your med school graduation day. What do you recall about that day? So I remember my mother, my best friends, three of them were there, my uh, sisters, uh, my nephew. I remember the people in the audience. Mm -hmm. That's what I remember. I remember my mother, because at Harvard Medical School, you got to go up on, the parent got to go up on stage with you. Really? And my mother was there and she had on this green dress and I had on my Harvard regalia. And I remember just how proud we both were. And so uh, I was hoping to uh, reminisce on that this year because I have a daughter who's graduating from Harvard Medical School. Mm -hmm. And to our knowledge, we're only the second African-American mother-daughter team to graduate. And so I was so looking forward mm. to being on that stage and handing her that diploma. So you, of all people, know what it feels like on graduation yeah. day. So I know that decision to move the commencement ceremony online was 
was difficult? It was difficult but necessary. Mm -hmm. Large gatherings couldn't cannot occur right now. We are just not at a stage where we flatten the curve enough. And we as medical scientists, um, public health leaders, research scientists, we all understood that. So we really did not get a lot of pushback from our students. We, they were just disappointed like everyone. You know, I've asked this question to many leaders about their leadership approach during this in terms of when they had to make a decision to shift classes online. What stood out for you that might have been challenging or something that got you through making decisions through all of this? You know, I think the most important thing that um, has gotten us to this point is communication, 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 Mm -hmm. transparency. The confidence to say we don't know but we'll figure it out together. Mm-hmm. And I have had a town hall meeting every Monday for the last six weeks, I think. And then on Thursdays, where we just answer questions. And I think that level of connectivity, I mean, we've had times that we've had 700 people on the Zoom, wow. right? And we have the chat room open and we're answering questions. And, you know, I like to laugh five times a day. And so sometimes I would create some things that made us laugh based on some of the questions that people were asking. But that communication has really, I think, connected us as a community as well. Being transparent. Hey, we all are scared. Mm -hmm. We all have got to get comfortable of what new norm is. But what I've tried to share with our community, we're going to define that new normalcy. We're going to do it, and we're going to do it together. And because the Morehouse School of Medicine is, and has always been called, a special institution because of the mission, and then as the students leave and the communities they're going to serve, so comes another decision, Dr. Montgomery Rice, and that is you all make a decision at some point to reopen on-site activity. Correct. And I say this all the time on the town hall and our digital engagements that you can't actually educate and train medical students on Zoom. Mm -hmm. You can deliver some curriculum on Zoom. But what makes Morehouse School of Medicine special is what happens at the bedside. The cultural competence that we get to share and model for our students. The cultural humility in which our public health Uh, students go out into the community and they learn not just something about the community, but they learn something about themselves when they are asked to step back and listen and take a role that doesn't put them in front, but puts that community in front. Our researchers, yeah, you can see how to do an ELISA test on YouTube, but you don't get to make those mistakes and they be your mistakes. And then when you get it right, you have to learn that in the laboratory. So Mm -hmm. all of the places that are our laboratories involve people and interactions that require us to be connected. Now, of course, our clinical people, our residents, our clinical faculty who work at Grady and Chore and DeKalb and Wellstar, all of those, have, and the VA, of course, mm-hmm. have not stopped. They have been on the front line. 
but we do believe that it's time for us to now begin to have a phase return to campus. And that this phase return is gonna serve as a model for how you create a safe environment in which to educate our students and continue to heal our patients and connect with our community. And then also to continue the discoveries that lead to the promise of science for those communities that we serve. So let's talk about then that phasing. What will it look like and when will it start? So it's already sort of started. It's mm -hmm. three phases. The first part of it is really about stabilization, right? Mm -hmm. So the first thing we had to do was to mitigate our short-term risk, stabilizing our operations. And our operations include not just our business continuity, but our academic virtual engagement. We were able to turn that on the dime because we've been preparing for this. Our business continuity, we still had opportunities to engage in research. So how could we keep those researchers safely in the laboratory, socially distancing, all of the things they need to do, but they were working on and still are working on some of the COVID-19 issues. Mm -hmm. We also had vendors that would be supplying our IT and all of those support mechanisms for academic virtual continuity. So we had to have our business continuity continuing. So we then set up in that first part, what we would call our command center. Mm -hmm. Our command center of people who looked at the resources that we currently had, what additional resources that we need. And then we started thinking about what would reopening look like, informed by science, informed by putting safety first. So now we're at this phase where we are thinking of reopening mm -hmm. and what we recognize how important testing would be. Testing because it gives people the confidence to know their status mm -hmm. and to contribute in an individual way to protecting themselves, their communities and their families. And when I say communities, I'm talking about our employee based community. And so we partnered with an entity to help us to do offer testing to all of our employees. And that's what we've been doing this week. Now, let me add, mm -hmm. before even doing that, though, the three weeks before this, we've been sanitizing the campus, catching up on things that we would have wanted to catch up on that increased our air quality ensuring that every space in our campus is ready for social distancing. And then doing a model where we understood we couldn't bring all 750 persons back. Mm -hmm. We will come back to work in stages. So we will have about a third of the campus on campus at any given time so that we could do appropriate social distancing. And then the rollout, which is already rolled out, that when anybody comes to campus, they have their symptom check that we've been able to put on our smartphones. We then have temperature checking before anybody can go into the campus and everybody has a mask on. Mm -hmm. And of course, we've done the basic things, hand sanitation, all of that signage everywhere. So all of that started three weeks ago in preparation for the week now of testing 
and then next week for reopening. And the reopening will be phased. We will have break ourselves up into groups, a blue group and a green group who will be Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday, and then Fridays, we'll all work from home virtually mm -hmm. again to regroup. And, and then the third part, Rosa, let me, if I can say this, sure. we put in a monitoring system. So we have persons who have been tagged on our campus as monitors, mm -hmm. and they will go through the campus and ask people, can I see your smartphone to show that you went through the symptom check today and you had your temperature checked? They will look to see if you're outside of your office. Do you have a mask on? They will look in conference rooms to make sure that we are appropriately socially distancing. You of all people, and of course, at the Morehouse School of Medicine campus, you all are well aware of the 14-day period of, of when you may not have a, the symptoms and you may actually contract or show signs of, of having the virus. So that being said, someone says, okay, President Montgomery Rice, as a president dean of a medical institution, you all have to get this right because if it doesn't, if a medical institution can't properly implement safety measures, mm -hmm. then that's problematic. Yes, yes, yes. So, so, Rose, one of the first things you have to recognize is that anybody who's sick cannot come on campus. If mm -hmm. they're having symptoms, they can't come on campus. They should be at home. They shouldn't be going to the grocery store. They shouldn't be going to the Target. If you have symptoms, you should be at home, mm -hmm. okay? Because we don't know whether or not you have the virus. Now, we also know, though, that people who are in that risk category, we also are continuing the opportunity for those persons to work from home. Flexible work assignments is what we've called it. And we are being very considerate of that because we are running that through our Office of Disability Service because I don't want the onus put on some supervisor to be trying to figure out whether somebody is trying to game the system mm -hmm. or whether somebody has diabetes or hypertension because that's that employee's personal information. And we have an Office of Disability Service that protects the privacy of our employees. So if a, an employee believes that they have one of those risk categories, there is a process for them to go through that protects them. Mm -hmm. And we will do our best to continue them with flexible work assignments for as long as we need to until we get to some level of comfort mm -hmm. that will allow us to say they could come back on the campus. That may not be, though, and we're realistic about this, until a vaccine is available. Mm -hmm. And we've been very honest about this. And, and that's where that transparency comes in. When I have my town halls with people and they ask me these questions, I say, you all, this is what we're going to do until we know better. And knowing better from us, though, is informed by science. And we'll dive further into that in just a moment. This is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott, and I'm joined by Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, President and Dean of the Morehouse School of Medicine. After this, we continue our conversation regarding the medical school reopening and how this year's graduates are heading into communities greatly affected by the COVID-19 pandemic.
This is Closer Look. I am Rose Scott. We're in the final hours of our fundraising drive, so please support us if you can at wabe.org slash donate. We're keeping these breaks very short to get you right back to Closer Look. But right now, we do need your help. Joining me is Alita McCallman, WABE's education specialist. Thank you, Rose. That is wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. And your donation helps bring you the latest of information on coronavirus, the 2020 election, the Ahmad Arbery murder investigation, and so much more. And that's with no muss, no fuss, no rant, no slant, no hype. We provide information and context to you, and you get to make decisions based on that information that we share. But today, we need you to help make another important decision, and that's to become a WABE member. To make that happen, you can give right now at wabe.org slash donate. You know, Closer Look is always here for you. We bring you great interviews every day and allow you to connect to the rest of your Atlanta community and surrounding areas. You rely on us. Now we're relying on you to make a donation. Please give right now at wabe.org slash donate. Or you can give us a call at 678-553-9090. We need your donations because, as we always say, 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta community. That's not just a tagline, it's the truth. Many of our listeners give about $15 a month, but please donate what you feel you can afford at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Thank you. Thank you so much to everyone who has helped us today. Now it's time to hear from you. We're about to wrap up our spring fundraising drive, so donate at 678-553-9090. Or you can go to wabe.org slash donate. It only takes a couple minutes to give. But if you're already a sustaining member of WABE, consider giving an additional gift if you can. Even a few dollars each month will really help us during these challenging times. Make your donation by calling 678-553-9090 or go to wabe.org slash donate. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at Richmont.edu. That's R I C H M O N T.edu. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott, and my conversation continues now with Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, president and dean of the Morehouse School of Medicine. We've been talking about the medical institution's phasing of reopening, and also, Dr. Montgomery Rice, let's get into why we're doing all of this, which, of course, is the COVID-19 pandemic, the timing and importance of these recent Morehouse School of Medicine graduates entering into those communities we now know are highly affected by the COVID-19 pandemic and what that means to you and what they'll be able to do immediately for some of them. So, you know, when we think about our mission at Morehouse School of Medicine, it is leading the creation and our our vision, excuse me, is leading the creation and advancement of health equity. And we live that vision through who we educate and train, diversifying that healthcare workforce focusing on diseases that disproportionately impact communities and ensuring that we do this through 
our public service opportunities. Mm -hmm. So you think about these graduates who, who are going to be going out. They, first of all, are culturally competently prepared graduates. And so they're going into places where there may be a community that is disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 because they're going to underserved communities. Mm -hmm. They're going to undervoiced communities. They're going to communities where there is a higher population of black people. And we just recently had a white paper. It came out in the AJC, but it's been published on our website and we've submitted it now to JAMA. But the importance of this paper showed that there appears to be a place-based. What do I mean by that? Place-based. If you think about the fact that if you have a county that has a higher concentration of people of color, we are seeing a higher rate of COVID-19. We looked at across all 159 counties in the state of Georgia, and we control for uninsured rate, poverty percentage and population density, as well as the percentage of blacks, what we were able to see is that for every 1% increase in the proportion of African-Americans in a county, it resulted in a 2.3% increase in the county of COVID-19 confirmed cases. Mm -hmm. Now you say, well, how could that be? Does the virus jump on black people quicker than it jumps on anybody else? No, it does not. Mm -hmm. But here's the caveat. We know that in these underrepresented minority communities, people do not have the opportunity to socially distance. So we also know that when you look at the persons who are on the front line, when I'm not talking about just healthcare workers, even though we're beginning to see it there also, I'm speaking about those people who drive the buses, who deliver the food, mm -hmm. who clean the hotel rooms, et cetera. Many of those persons are underrepresented minority, African-American and Hispanic. And they are the ones who are really having a challenge with social distancing. So if I am unable to social distance and I am working one of those jobs and I come into contact with someone who has the virus, I will most likely get the virus. And then I go back to my home or my community where there's a higher concentration of African-Americans or Hispanic or in my home where I cannot socially distance and therefore the virus spreads. Mm -hmm. That is why contact tracing is so important, not just testing people, but if someone tests positive, we need to know everyone that that person has come into contact with so we can contain the virus. And containment means getting those individuals tested or quarantined so that they are not outspreading the virus. And so that's the challenge that our graduates are being faced with. They're gonna go into those communities where people are having a higher rate of disease. But what they're gonna be able to do, mm -hmm. they're gonna be able to look at those individuals and advise them about what they should be doing. They're gonna know the latest treatment options. They're gonna get those people into care a lot faster. And they're gonna understand the why of why that needs to happen. Which leads me to this as we begin to wrap up, Dr. Montgomery Rice, because there has been so much conversation about the lack of adequate early data 
reflecting the racial disparities and deaths and infections. And the question I've been asking everyone, particularly folks like you, noted medical scientists, specialists, when we talk about the long-term effect and the consequences of this pandemic for specific communities, which could be communities of color, the rural communities, essential workers. Yes. And this could be a lengthy answer, so I'm prepared for it. What are those lessons learned through your lens, someone like you? And we've had so many conversations about health disparities. Yes. So, you know, that is a question that many people are asking. And the first thing that I would say to people, what this virus has done is unveiled to some the systemic nature and the impact of having health disparities. But it's also shown us that we must do better as a nation and looking at our most vulnerable populations and allocating resources appropriately to them, to those that are most likely to be impacted. So I want people to make sure that they get this. Just because I may have diabetes or hypertension or heart disease, doesn't mean that I'm going to contract the virus mm-hmm. any faster than you are. The fact that people of color are having a higher rate of contracting the virus is because they're in closer contact with someone who has been infected. Now, when the virus gets into my system and I have diabetes or hypertension or heart disease, I will then have a harder chance of surviving the virus because of the physiology or the pathophysiology that the virus causes. It attacks the GI, Mm -hmm. it attacks the lungs, it attacks the kidney. So if I have those organs that are already impaired, I am going to have a higher rate of complications from the virus, Mm -hmm. okay? So what we have to do is a prevention strategy. How do we prevent people from getting the virus in the first place? That's where testing comes in. Testing allows you to identify the cases. You then do contact tracing to quarantine the person who has the virus, understand who they've come into contact with, and then prevent the spread. You also get those people who have contracted the virus mm-hmm. in a healthcare delivery system such that their symptoms can be monitored. And as their symptoms escalate, they get into care sooner. That's why access to care is so important. It always goes That's back to what we were talking a primary about. care provider is so important because if I get the virus, what am I going to do? I'm going to call my primary care doctor. My primary care doctor then is going to be checking on me, monitoring, doing symptom checks, all of those things. And when I start to escalate, they're going to make sure that I get into care. So when we talk about the systemic challenges of access to health care, this is where you see 
the gaps. And this is where you see how critical it is that people have access to health care. Mm-hmm. When you see the severity in which people who have chronic diseases are impacted by this by this virus, this is when you see how important it is to have the highest quality of care extended to anyone who is sick, such that their disease can be controlled. And if they have an insult, they can better overcome that insult. Mm-hmm. And so testing is important and access is important, and then the quality of care. And I just want to make one other comment about this quality of care. Mm-hmm. We've heard that people have not been able to have tests. And I would say to people, don't give up. If you are symptomatic, use whatever resource that you can to get tested, because you are the one who has to take care of yourself first before you can take care of your family. Don't put off thinking that this might be the flu. Mm -hmm. We've heard too many cases of people saying, well, I thought it was the flu. And then they have the inflammatory uh, exacerbation that we see. And then they end up in the hospital intubated. So we're asking people that if they are symptomatic, then they need to reach out to the multiple sources, Grady, Morehouse School of Medicine, Department of Public Health, Emory, wherever they can to make sure they can get a test. And then they need to quarantine mm-hmm. until they know the results. And finally- If I look at Rose, what looks like on the other side from this, mm-hmm. what I hope I will see is a realization that you all, we have gaps in our system aligned with access and quality of care, and that we will continue to understand the value of Morehouse School of Medicine as we educate and train this next generation who will go out and serve in these pop- will serve these populations of people. But we also understand how important it is to have data and to make decisions that is informed by science. Because the science is telling us that we can flatten the curve if we socially distance, if we follow the CDC guidelines, we can make a difference. And I just ask those in our community to continue to be vigilant in following the CDC guidelines on social distancing. And then if you become symptomatic, seek out getting tested and also be able to list your contacts so that we can help with those individuals also. Well, then finally, at the time of this broadcast, the United States is well over well over 1.3 million total cases, nearly 84,000 total deaths. I ask for your reflection on this. Could the United States have approached addressing this virus better? You know, um, it's always important for us to be reflective of what we could have done differently uh, early on. There were a lot of people who were afraid. Really all of us were, right? And still are. And we sort of did a lot of times what people do when they're afraid. We started to make excuses. 
We don't necessarily think as clearly, but now I think we have some clarity. And so what I will say is this, consistently, many of us have said that testing is very important. We recognize that there could be limitations on resources and that everybody may not need to be tested. Mm -hmm. That we need to have an informed strategy for who we test. But everybody needs to be valued. Everybody needs to be valued. And so when I go out into a community and I think about, here's data that tells me that one community is more impacted than another. I, as a leader, must think about, first of all, the why of that, and then the what of that. And the what of that is, what should we do differently with that community versus the other community that's not as impacted? Mm -hmm. So you remember I talked about healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. It is now being shown that they're the higher percentage, and particularly in Georgia, the healthcare workers who are impacted are African-American females. Why? Because they're our licensed nurses and our vocational nurses. They were on the front line compared to everybody else. They couldn't social distance. Did we make all the PPE available to them early on? Probably not, and it wasn't because we were trying to keep it from them. It was more so because we didn't know all of the importance of the protective equipment. So what I would say is, yes, we could have done better with testing. Yes, we could have done better with PPE. Now we know, so let's do better now. Let's make sure now that we are looking at the science and we are allocating testing to those communities that are mostly disproportionately impacted. Let's create resources so that people can quarantine and not lose their profession, lose their jobs because they can't work for 14 days. Mm -hmm. Let's use our grassroots efforts to take care of our elderly and our impaired persons such that they don't have to go to the grocery store, that we implement the grocery delivery service or the meal delivery services to persons who would not have otherwise received those benefits. And let's engage telehealth in a way that the care delivery is, if for nothing else, just checking on people and saying, did you check your temperature today? Hmm. Have you had any of these symptoms? And if you do that every day, you'll start to see some signals and the signals will start to tell you if there are in communities that are becoming at risk and then you allocate resources to them. That starts with testing and engagement to make sure that you flatten the curve. That's what we can do. Rose, I know we can do that. That's what we should do. And we've been talking about flattening the curve since day one. Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice is the president and dean of the Morehouse School of Medicine. Dr. Montgomery Rice, as always, I remember interviewing you when you first got to the campus. You had to even <laughs> unpack your books. That's right. <laughs> Dr. Montgomery Rice, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. You're listening to Closer Look. 
I am Rose Scott. We're in our spring member drive, but stay right here because this will be a very short break, I promise. But first, we do need your help to keep WABE going. That's because 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta community. So please give right now at WABE.org slash donate. Joining me now is WABE's education specialist, Alita McCallman. Happy to be here. Just call 678-553-9090 or go to wabe.org slash donate. We're in the final hours of our fundraising drive, so it's important that we hear from you right now, wherever you are. To support WABE's excellent news coverage, go to wabe.org slash donate. Or, Alita, they can call 678-553-9090. Let's think back over the last few months. WABE has done a lot. We now produce a coronavirus podcast called Did You Wash Your Hands? And we created a national call-in show on Saturdays. You might have heard of it. America Amplified, Life, Community, and COVID-19. In fact, I'll co-host the show coming up this Saturday at 3 p.m. And we're going to take a look at the pandemic's effect on communities of color. Then at 4 p.m., we'll focus on the economic cost of our canceled summer plans and also for those who work those typical summer jobs, what it means for those who work in tourism and hospitality. But right now, we do need your donation to help pay for the important programming you hear right here on the station. Go to wabe.org slash donate. Or Rose, they can call 678 678- Five five three ninety ninety. Because every day on Closer Look, Rose talks with newsmakers, medical experts, business owners, nonprofit organizations, and everyday people. She's your ear to the streets of Atlanta, but we can only do this with your support. And it's why we need your donation. Many of our listeners donate about $15 a month, but please give what you can at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. And thank you. All right. We are returning to Closer Look in just about 30 seconds. Thanks to everyone who's helped us. But we need you, too. So please give us a call. 678-553-9090. And as always, thank you. Or go online to wabe.org slash donate. It only takes a couple of minutes. And if you've never been a member of WABE or if your membership has lapsed, now's the time to join if you can. As a WABE member, you'll help us provide the Atlanta community with accurate news and information. $15 a month is the average gift, but do what feels right for you. Just go to wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. And thank you. And this is Closer Look from Atlanta's NPR station, WABE. I'm Rose Scott. Now, before we wrap up today's edition of Closer Look, here's what's on tap for tomorrow. Atlanta City Council member Antonio Brown shares the council's 60-day outreach plan for reaching unsheltered individuals at Atlanta's Hartsville-Jackson International Airport. We started interviewing some of the unsheltered, the homeless that was at the airport, and some of them were there because they had just lost their job because of COVID-19. And they, they were literally a paycheck already away from being homeless. How long ago so was this that? Wa- this was maybe about a month and a half ago when we did the on-site inspection and evaluation. It was President Moore, it was Councilmember Westmoreland, Councilmember Dickens that joined me for this meeting with Hope Atlanta, APD, John Selden, the GM of the airport, and we kind of just just talked through this, like, hey, how do we solve this issue? Because there were several factors that were contributing to the increased number of unsheltered at the airport. I mean, you had a MARTA train 
service that was running till 1 a.m. into the airport. And the unsheltered population would congregate on that last train service into the airport and, and basically would be stuck at the airport because there would be no, no access to public transportation from that point until I believe around 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. So they would literally have to stay at the airport. And the GM was so compassionate. John Selden was so compassionate. He's like, it's no way that we're going to force these folks out of the airport when they have nowhere to go, nor do they have access to public transportation to get somewhere else. Then we hear the role the state's largest transit system, MARTA, will have in the city's plan and what MARTA has been doing so far. MARTA's Chief Customer Experience Officer Rhonda Allen and MARTA Police Chief Scott Crayer will join me. So we felt like the Garnett Station was the best first stop. We did our interventions there along with teaming up with the Hope Atlanta staff to offer services and to do interventions there before they even reach the airport. And then, of course, the Gateway is uh, right there off the Garnett Station. So we felt, again, that was another opportunity to direct them to the services at the Gateway Center if needed to make sure that... They had every opportunity to uh, get services if they uh, so desired. You know, I think for us, it's important to note that, you know, we've been partnering with these individuals in Hope Atlanta for quite some time. And, you know, now it just provides us with a meaningful way to engage with these individuals. And, you know, because there's a place for them to go. And so what we understand is that it takes time and trust for these individuals to actually seek help. And now that we have these teams kind of at the airport and at Garnett, it gives us a means to kind of collaborate better and, you know, be able to kind of address the situation constructively. We don't want to have a punitive means when we deal with the unsheltered, but we want to have, you know, and engage them in a meaningful way and really connect them with the necessary resources. So I think this is a great opportunity now with everyone kind of working collaboratively together because of the pandemic. And a conversation about resources for those facing eviction with Matt Hurd, Executive Director for Open Doors. We've created a special program called RentBridge in Mm -hmm. response to the pandemic. RentBridge is really designed to help any of our households placed to be able to have a safety net. And so, you know, what we're looking at is comparing to national averages and averages in the metro area, anywhere from 20 to 30% of households living in rental communities are going to struggle with paying rent. And so we've raised funds to be able to help them at first with April and May's rent. And we're hoping that we can continue to raise funds to help hundreds of households stay housed. Uh, You know, most of the the folks that we work with don't have the ability to work from home. You know, they're having to stay home with kids because daycares are closed. A lot have experienced furloughed work status or been laid off. And so we want to make sure that all of those families that we've helped and individuals that we've helped don't return to homelessness because of the COVID crisis. All of these conversations are coming up on tomorrow's edition of Closer Look. Now, as mentioned earlier, the Morehouse School of Medicine held its 36th commencement exercise online. And helping celebrate this year's graduates, a pretty big name in entertainment, I asked President and Dean Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice about it. And how do you get John Legend? You know, there are some people in my organization who have, can pull strings, and I am just grateful that they're there. <laughs> 
But you know, he's always been committed, though. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he he and both his he and his wife are very committed to causes uh, that really reflect their caring of the community. And so we said thank you, thank you, thank you to him. I wish it was going to be in person, though, because you know I like to see him in person. But <laughs> whatever, we'll take it. We'll take it as we may. Take what you can get. I know you put a lot of study in, put a lot of time in, so that you could go out and heal, and. Of course, the world needs you now more than ever. When you signed up for medicine, you didn't know you were going to be graduating into a uh, global pandemic. But um, this moment requires leadership. It requires love. It requires empathy. And we hope you go out into the world with those characteristics that were imbued in you at Morehouse School of Medicine and go out and make a better world. Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing Rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closerlook. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. This is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. We're fundraising today, but we'll keep this as short as possible. So please stay with us right now. And please support us if you can at wabe.org slash donate. Joining me is Alita McCallman, WABE's education specialist. Thanks, Rose. That is wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Your donation right now helps pay for all of the critical news and information that you get on your station. Now, these are the last few hours of The Drive, so please give as you can at 678-553-9090. Or you can go to wabe.org slash donate. Thanks to listeners who've already made their donation. Folks like Sheila De La Cruz in Atlanta. And she says, I've been listening to NPR daily since I was in high school, but I have never listened more than in the past two months. Thanks to WABE for your excellent COVID-19 crisis coverage. Thanks to you, Sheila. We're grateful that she's a WABE member. Now it's your turn. If you can't afford to give, please give at WABE.org slash donate. And as always, thank you. That's right, Rose, or you can call 678-553-9090. It's important that we hear from you right now because, as we say, 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta community, and many of our listeners give about $15 a month. But whatever you feel that you can afford, 
feel free to do that at wabe.org slash donate or with a call to 678-553-9090. And thank you. It's important we hear from you now. Give us a call, 678-553-9090. And as always, I say thank you. Or you can visit wabe.org slash donate. And if you donate online, you'll get to see all of the great thank you gifts that we at WABE have to offer to members. And again, it only takes a couple minutes to give. If you're already a sustaining member, first, we thank you. But please consider giving an additional gift if you can. We need you, Atlanta. Go to wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. It's been a pleasure, Rose. And everyone, thank you. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.